start out this morning by telling you a parable. And this parable I've titled The Penitent Son, kind of based on Luke 15. Uh, you're welcome to turn to Luke 15 if you want. Welcome when you don't, because you might be offended. So I'm going to tell you this parable, and then you can tell me what you think afterwards. Okay? So there was a very wealthy man who had two sons. And the younger one was kind of wild, and one day he asked his father to give him a portion of the inheritance that belonged to his portion of the inheritance. So the father figured out, you know, what that was going to come up to, and he gave his son his portion in cash. The son received his money, and he got his things together, and he ran away to a distant country. And in that distant country, he began to spend his wealth in riotous, sinful living. Now, some years went by, and the son began to feel a twinge of guilt for what he had done. Gradually, that guilt became stronger and stronger until he was fully under a conviction that he had really done something wrong to his father. So, he was also a little bit afraid because he realized that eventually his money was going to run out and then what was going to happen to him after that? So the son decided he would make up with his father. He'd be reconciled. He sat down. He wrote a letter of, of apology to his dad. He waited for a response. Nothing came. So he said, well, I need to show that I'm really sincere. So he took all the money that was left and he wired it back to his dad. Still no response. Now he knew his dad was rich and powerful and had contacts in the country where he lived. So he figured, why do you change my behavior? And my dad will hear about that. So he separated from his friends. He began, he sent all the money back so he had to work. So he took the the humblest, meanest job he could. He started cleaning bathrooms. He became a janitor. No offense to janitors, by the way, um, if anyone does that. But, you know, he figured, okay, I'm a rich kid now. Now I've got to work hard. Still no response from his dad. He began to fast. He said, if I, you know, don't treat my body right, maybe my dad will see I'm really sorry about what I did. And he began to dress in rags. And finally, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll walk barefoot all the way home, and I'll beat myself on the back as I go. And he did that. And as he was coming home, his dad looked and saw him, and he thought, my son must really, truly, genuinely be sorry. And so he ran out there and forgave him and accepted him back. What do you think of my parable? <laughs> so much of a... You made it up. Yes, I made it up. It <laughs> <laughs> could depend on his work, like... <clears throat> Based on his work, proving that he really, you know, sincerely sorry for what he did. So, out of reality. Oh, I was exaggerating. I definitely exaggerated. Um, however, what my point is, this is the gospel that many people throughout church history and in our present day believe. And it's a false gospel. It's completely corrupt and false gospel. This is not the gospel. So last week we began learning about Tertullian, and um, Tertullian, just by way of review, he's a third century father, he, uh, we learned about his background, we took a glimpse into his personality, uh, we looked at his writing style, um, uh, we learned about how proliferous of a writer he was, and eventually a very influential writer in church history. We also learned he was controversial, and... Um, he was controversial for, for more reasons than one, but perhaps not the least of them was the fact that eventually he 
became a Montanist. I remember perhaps talking about the Montanists in the past. We also learned, though, that while Tertullian was controversial, he was also helpful. He, he said he wrote a lot of things that did help us out, especially when it came to defending and, and defining Orthodox Christian doctrine about God, about the nature and person of God. He said, and he, he wrote a lot of things that really do help us out. Uh, for example, he, he described the Trinity, and in doing that, he employed a phrase that ultimately made it into our definition today of the Trinity. He, he used the phrase, three persons, one substance. Uh, so that was very helpful of him. He also fought against heretics, um, wrote some books you know, in, in response and refutation of those guys. Well, today, as we continue to learn about Tertullian, we need to move on, and we have to, unfortunately, we can't beat around the bush, we can't ignore the elephant in the room, we do have to talk about Tertullian's gospel. And to answer, uh, well, this question, what did Tertullian believe about the salvation of man? The means of how many things that we've got. We're going to try to answer that question, and to do that, we're going to... Uh, have, we have to look widely into his writings. He wrote a lot, as I said, he's very proliferous, and what that does is that can kind of tell us a few things about the man. It, it tells us a lot more about his whole theology than if he had just written one thing. Um, be aware, of course, he does change. Everybody changes. You know, the, uh, John MacArthur of today is different from John MacArthur of 30 years ago. That's normal. Um, as people learn and, and grow, we change. But then Tertullian's no exception. Uh, sometimes people change for the better, sometimes people change for the worse, but change they do. So we have to bear that in mind as well. A good place to start when we're looking for Tertullian's Gospel is probably his best book, which is Against Marcion. We mentioned that last week. So Against Marcion, if you weren't here, was his book where he basically wrote out the doctrines and the teachings of the heretic Marcion, and one by one, refuted them. So, just by way of review, we've encountered Marcion before, and we've talked about what he taught. Uh, what can you remember from uh, Marcion's doctrine, from his, his heresy? What, did, what was Marcion? I think we mentioned some of the things last week, but not too many. What did Marcion believe? Is it Gnostic, right? Was he a Gnostic? Semi-Gnostic. Okay. Some people call him Gnostic. Some would say he was more of a hybrid. Oh, okay. So he thought that uh, the God of the Old Testament was like inferior or negligible, and he's different than the new. Yeah. The new, the new, the New Testament God is fresh. Right. He was even more extreme than the Gnostics yeah. on that point. He okay. believed that the Old Testament God was literally evil, uh, like uh, the bad guy God. Uh, and then he believed that the New Testament God was the good God. So there's these two rival gods in Marcion's theology. So that was kind of the basic premise. Um, what were some other things about Marcion, if you can remember? It was quite a few weeks ago when we dealt with him. He, um, remember what he believed about the uh, scriptures? How he handled those? But what about the Word of God itself? Does anyone remember specifically some of the things that he thought about that? The Word of God himself? The Word of God. Oh, the Word of God himself. Oh. 
So one of the things that he believed about the Bible is he kind of took what he wanted and he left what he didn't want. So the Old Testament, of course, he didn't believe that. He thought that was the scripture of the bad guy. But the New Testament, he kind of took, well, what he did is he took the Gospel of Luke and he accepted that, although he edited it. And then he took the writings of Paul and he accepted most or all of those. And he rejected everything else. And he said, no, no, the rest of that is the scripture. So he kind of um, you know, picked and chose what he wanted. Now, Tertullian... Oh, another point... Yeah, another point probably worth making is he kind of used the Old Testament text to attack the creator God, the, the lawgiver God. So he used the Old Testament, but he didn't, he didn't necessarily believe that it was you know, inspired scripture. Now, what Tertullian does in his book against Marcion... Uh, he kind of picks Marcin part a, a lot in the first half. The latter half of that book, he does something really good. And he, he basically says, I'm going to accept just the scripture, the New Testament scripture, for the sake of argument, accept just the New Testament scripture that Marcin accepts. And then, with that scripture, Tertullian basically point by point proves that Marcin uh, was wrong. He proves that the creator God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same God. Now, one of Marcion's sloppy arguments was effectively this. He said that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament must be rivals because the, the Old Testament God gives the law, whereas the New Testament God delivers us from the law through Jesus Christ. So, obviously, heresy... Um, Tertullian takes that and he says that's an impossible argument if you actually read the scripture that you claim to believe. And he goes straight to Galatians. Tertullian does. And he says this. He argues that the Galatians, quote, the Galatians thought that faith in Christ was obligatory without annulling the law because it still appeared to them a thing incredible that the law should be set aside by its own author. So what Tertullian is saying is, it's impossible for the Galatians to have made that mistake if, in fact, the Apostle Paul was teaching them that there's these two rival gods. The fact that they should set aside the law would come as a matter of course, if you think about it. But the fact that they were confused is evidence that Paul was teaching that it was one and the same God. He goes on, he shows that Paul... Uh, as Paul clears up things with the Galatians, the last thing that Paul does is teach them, oh, actually there's two gods. Instead, he's explaining to them why it is that God uh, set aside the law. Uh, and it's at this point that I think that in Marcion that Tertullian may be at his best in, in when it comes to talking about the gospel. Um, while he's fighting and defeating Marcion on Marcion's own ground, so to speak, he also makes some of his best statements of uh, the gospel of faith. So here's some things that he says. He says this, quote, man might be justified. Well, he says, first of all, back up a little bit, in context, he's dealing with Marcion's misuse of Galatians, and Tertullian, he explains that the Apostle Paul was teaching that Old Testament prophecy was being fulfilled. And he said, this type of fulfillment can be understood as, as this. This is Tertullian speaking. He writes, quote, man might be justified it's the time when man might be justified by the liberty of faith, not by servitude to the law, because the just shall live by his faith. 
and Tertullian continues, he goes on, he says this, again explaining Paul's position. He says, the Apostle Paul confirms, quote, the prophets, even as Christ did. Uh, Marxian's argument was that Christ rejected the prophets. They're the Old Testament gods, gods right? Tertullian says that's not true. But Paul confirms the prophets, even as Christ did. The object, therefore, of the faith whereby the just man shall live will be that same God to whom likewise belongs the law. And get this, this is Tertullian speaking. He says, by doing which, by doing the law, no man is justified. And Tertullian still goes on later. He starts to talk about Abraham. He's still in Galatians, by, by the way, at this point. Um, and he's saying this, we who are even more like him in believing in God are there, thereby justified as Abraham was and thereby also obtain life since the justice is on his faith. So Tertullian makes some wonderful, I think some, some of the best statements we can find um, giving testimony to the reality, to the, to the fact that justification comes by faith and not by good works. So there you have it, right? Tertullian believes in justification by faith. Right? Maybe. And again, maybe not. So... You made a statement, or he truly believed that? He made these statements. I didn't make them up. Yeah, he wrote all that. Okay. So Tertullian is a man of contradictions, unfortunately. And... Uh, that's going to be true whenever you're dealing with someone who's highly controversial. You'll find that they often are people who are full, filled with contradictions. Individually, we are all filled with contradictions. And as we're dealing with some of the realities of, of, of our own lives, and realities if you're a pastor, as Tertullian was, um, the ministry that he had to deal with, um, uh, the challenges of the time, people were being persecuted, people were you know, denying Christ, people were sinning, People were coming back to the church after denying Christ. Those are realities he had to deal with. And the result, total result being that some of the things he writes are really good. And some of the things he writes are really, really bad. So, before we get into, move on with Tertullian, let me ask you this question. Have you heard of the term easy believism? What does easy believism mean in your mind? Nothing, just believe. Nothing, just believe. Okay. Easy believism is obviously more of a 20th century, maybe now 21st century term been used to refer to this idea where people, uh, you know, believe. But I guess you could chalk it up to once they believe, there's no difference afterward than before. Um, they just exactly the same person. But maybe they prayed a prayer at a crusade or something, right? So um, it's obviously, it's packed with a lot of baggage and for one person it might mean something else, but that's kind of what it means for me. Romans uh, 3.20 says that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one can be justified by keeping the law. Uh, however, the law was given for a reason, was it not? Um, and according to Paul, it was given so that we would know about our sin. So if we're supposed to know about our sin, then there must be some response on our part that's expected 
of us with respect to our sinfulness. Right? Yes, and, but one of the problems with human nature is, well, really, one, you could say the biggest problem with human nature is our unbelief. In the church, there are many of us who, who follow this uh, line of thought up to a point. We know that we're supposed to know about our sins. We know about faith. And then at some point, we veer wildly out of orbit. And we stray away from the gospel of faith. This happens again and again and again throughout history. Uh, it happens throughout the course of church history. We could spend a long time, we've already spent some time in the past, we could really spend a lot of time picking on the Roman Catholic Church for how they perverted and ultimately abandoned the gospel of faith. We could also probably spend as much time, almost as much time, picking on Protestant churches and denominations and groups since the Reformation who have also abandoned the gospel of faith. And by the way, I'm not talking just about liberals. I'm talking about conservative groups, very conservative groups. There are conservative groups and denominations out there today who preach gospels of what they might call repentance or lordship salvation, which when you get down to the details and figure out what they're saying, they're nothing short of gospels wherein we are justified in part by faith and justified in part by our works which is not true gospel. In short, though, they, they don't put it this way. They probably wouldn't use these words. What they're offering is their version of the gospel, which is um, effectively where we do our part in a deal to receive our justification from God. And there's a reason for that. It's a response in part Many of these Gospels are a response in part to the problem of what we call easy believism. So we see a problem, but the response is, rather than to preach the Gospel better, more, uh, more accurately, we end up perverting the Gospel a little bit in order to make some amendments. Now, why are we talking about all this? Well, I, wanna, I want us to understand Tertullian, and I think this kind of helps us do that because, again, he was a man of his time as well, where he had to deal with the things that um, were happening in his sphere of ministry. And, but more than that, I also want us to, under to understand or appreciate that Tertullian's error is one that we've been committing, and perennially, is one that we've been committing all along the way. It's not like he's this unique guy out there in, in church history. Um, this is something that's just very, very common. It's merely representative of the heart of unbelief that we've had to fight over and over again throughout church history. Galatians is that. That's what the book of Galatians is. First century, Paul gave them the gospel, and yet the very people who Paul preached the gospel to are falling away from the gospel. And really, if you think about it, it's, it's unbelief that has led us to box it. Um, it's unbelief that has led us to botch it with respect to our understanding of the nature of repentance. So while Against Marcion was perhaps Tertullian's best book, I think so far it's the best one I've, I've read, um, he wrote another shorter book that is called On Repentance. And that book, unfortunately, is perhaps one of his books. He, he tries to sit down and explain repentance for us. 
Uh, at best, this book on repentance generates a lot of confusion, and at worst, it possibly teaches a false gospel. So, um, what does he do in that book? Well, he starts out, he begins the book by contemplating the definition of repentance. And as he's contemplating it, he begins by stating this. He says that repentance is not merely an emotion of the mind, quote, an emotion of the mind arising from disgust at some previously cherished worst sentiment. He says that's not what repentance is. Okay. He goes on and he says, but the problem, first of all, Tertullian can be a little obscure at times when you read it. There are going to be times when you're like, put your finger on it for us, the Tertullian. What are you saying? And it can be hard to find what he's saying. So, he's told us what repentance is not. And what you're beginning to think as you mean him, so what is repentance, Tertullian? And this is the closest he comes to definition. He says this, quote, The rule of repentance is that no violent hand, so to speak, be ever laid on good deeds or thoughts. Now we know what repentance is, right? Can you repeat it one more time? No violent hands be ever laid on good deeds or thoughts. That's repentance, according to the Petulia, in one sentence. I'm still a little bit foggy. Okay, what, is, what does that mean, Mr. Petulia? Well, I still think it's a little unclear as it goes on, but um, uh, as I as you continue to read on repentance, a couple things become clearer. He thinks at least these two points are true. One, repentance is necessary for our pardon and salvation. He makes that pretty clear. Two, it is fulfilled in our works. He also makes that pretty clear. Pretty clear. Works of righteousness. Um, now, at this point, I'll take some questions in a minute. But at this point, you might be able to argue that Tertullian is still basically on track with the gospel. We might just possibly, possibly be able to suppose that, that Tertullian is saying our justification comes through faith and is evidenced by subsequent righteous works of repentance. Okay? Alright, before I go on, any questions? Not continue. It becomes increasingly difficult, I think, to understand Tertullian in that way. Because he begins to talk about God's position with respect to the believer. He says some things that are very uh, difficult, really disconcerting, quite frankly. One of the things he says is this. He says, how inconsistent, quote, how inconsistent is it to expect pardon of sins to a, a repentance not fulfilled? This is to hold out your hand for merchandise, but not produce the price. This is pretty, pretty disconcerting when you look at that. Tertullian has actually, in, in on repentance, he frequently refers to God's forgiveness and pardon as a gift. He uses that term. But now here he's calling it merchandise. He says more. He says, Repentance is the price at which the Lord has determined to reward pardon. He proposes 
the redemption of release from penalty at this compensating exchange of repentance. It still gets worse. According to Tertullian in this book, from the one from the moment that one a Christian repents and believes, God waits and watches to see if that repentance is genuine before he gives the penitent one his salvation. He says this, quote, The Lord, when about to make us a grant of eternal life, first institutes a probation of our repentance. It goes on. It says, Our amendment should be manifested while pardon being in abeyance. There is still a prospect of penalty. While the penitent does not yet merit, so far as we can merit, his liberation. End in our repentance, what Tertullian teaches is that the gospel is kind of a deal we make with God. Uh, he quite correctly calls our salvation a gift. And he even says God, that God promised, free, promised freely the grace of our part. But then after he says that, he then goes on to say that to obtain this free gift, we do actually have to pay something for it. So it's still based on what? You have probation for six months. <coughs> In order to receive the Turn your Bibles to Romans 4, 4 and 5. There's a point to all of this beyond let's just learn a bit of history about um, one of the early church fathers. Uh, in my experience, especially in the church, churches, um, Possibly a book of God and live here and say, especially uh, conservative churches that lean Arminian, um, and there are others as well. I don't want to just pick on them. But um, what we run into a lot is we run into false gospels that sound like the gospel. They they say many of the right things. Um, it's easy for us to, to see the error, I think, in the gospel of Marcy. It's also uh, you know, it's easy for us to see, you know, Marcy was saying things like, well, there's two rods of gods. It's not so easy for us to see error in a gospel that starts out by saying the right thing. Maybe gets most of the theology of God's nature and person more or less correct. But when you get into the, into the details of it, it often raises it with some pretty egregious error. There are uh, conservative groups and teachers out there who will say things like salvation is a free gift, it's the grace of God, it's you know, accept by faith, and so on. But when you get into the details, you, you find that this gift, uh, they, they get a little contradictory. And I find that Tertullian does that. He's, he's doing something that we, again, I thought we do it. We've done it. We do it today, we've done it throughout history. Here's one more quote from Tertullian as he's trying to explain God's pardon with respect to repentance. He says this, Some think of God as if God were under a necessity of bestowing even on the unworthy what he has engaged in giving. And he turns to the reality and slavery. What's he saying right there? Well, in the context, uh, he's talking about pardon as a gift. And he's saying um, this gift, if, if you treat God as if he has to give this gift because he's promised it, we're basically making him a slave to his generosity. This is really... Uh, this is really bad, actually. It's a perverse argument. It actually attempts to turn the doctrine of God's grace upside down. So, Romans 4, 4 and 5, what does it say there? It says in the first verse 4, Paul tells us, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. 
Paul says that if God must reward sinners because they have something meritorious, something somehow that makes them worthy. That is to say that God is a debtor. And that's exactly the opposite of what Tertullian is saying. Tertullian is saying God is a slave if God keeps his promises. God doesn't make promises like you and I make promises. He makes perfect promises. And that's not what grace is either. Grace, by its very definition, according to Paul, cannot be earned or merited in any way. Verse 5, <clears throat> 4. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies... Who does God justify? The ungodly. He justifies the unworthy. He justifies those who are not meritorious and have no merit. But him who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. It's the ungodly who believe who are justified. Not the ungodly who did something to become a little bit godly. He's God halfway. It's not how it works. God is no one's debtor. He is, however, faithful to his own nature. He always keeps his promises. So that's the, that's the lesson today. Place, place your hope in his promise. Not in our own attempts to somehow merit One final verse of scripture is later on in Romans. I love the way that Paul sums up the gospel of grace. He says this If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If the gospel comes by grace, there can't be any works. You put works in it, it's grace is not grace anymore. We define the definition of grace. And he says, But if it is of works, if you earn your gospel by works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Grace and works, is what Paul's saying, grace and works with respect to how we become justified before God, grace and works are mutually exclusive. Your works, my works, have absolutely no part in being justified and received and forgiven by God.